Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I am so excited because summer Sundays at Crevasse 22 Riverhouse in St. Bernard are back. And the first one is going to be this Sunday, June 5th. So we're going to talk about what that means on the show today. And um, we're going to first start with Sabrina Schmidt, who's an artist, and she does what's called plain air painting. Um, and she's going to have a number of other artists with her who do that this coming Sunday. And then right following her, we're going to be talking with Blaise Paisol, if that's how you pronounce his name. And he is a naturalist and somebody who's really familiar with the nature, the natural areas of St. Bernard, which I was shocked to find out are so extensive that only 15 to 20 percent of the whole parish is actually developed. The rest of it is natural. Who knew? It's so incredible. And we, I learned a lot of incredible things from him. But let's get started with Sabrina because this is going to be quite a sight. She's going to have, how many do you think now? Well, I invite 20 artists yeah. from around New Orleans, St. Bernard, St. Tammany. And people are interested. They're interested. Not everyone can make it on Sunday, but they're looking forward to painting in St. Bernard throughout the next few months. So Sunday, we are going to be basically launching a summer of painting the natural sites of St. Bernard throughout the whole parish and uh, during the summer. And then we're going to have a big show of that work in the fall. So I'm really excited about it. And it's, it's basically um, uh, really Sabrina's idea and... Um, and, and, and she's putting it together and I'm just kind of playing host and I'm really thrilled about it. So Sabrina, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, yourself, uh, plain air painting. I think most people don't know what that means and um, about what's gonna be happening on Sunday between 11 and four um, uh, on Sarah Lane in, in Poitras, Louisiana. So, um Jean, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for supporting the arts the way you do. It's just amazing. And Love I've been it. painting there and around town and across the lake and in St. Bernard now, really since the pandemic. It's always been something that I, my heart was there. I just didn't have the time with kids and family to, to go out and paint daily. So my main is graphic design. But when the pandemic happened, it just made space and time to spend time outdoors and painting and gathering with other artists. Right. St. Bernard is a beautiful place. It's just trying to get people here to explore and see what St. Bernard has to offer. I think too often people just think of St. Bernard in terms of Judge Perez um, Drive and, and St. Bernard Highway. They, they really don't know what is beyond that. And, and that's why I think what you're doing is so important because, I mean, really to have such a huge expanse of natural area and you know, swamps and marshes and wetlands and riverfront and, and Gulf waterfront and all the fisheries, all of that within 25 minutes of the French Quarter is crazy. It really and I follow plein air artists and there's plein air events all over our country and they post pictures that look like it's from here southeast Louisiana and I'm like we need this here 
I think artists would just enjoy being here and we have amazing food as well. So I think it all goes together. So, so explain to folks what plain air painting is. So plain air painting is painting outdoors, just getting your paints, your easel, everything, and just go out in nature and spend time with nature, connecting with nature, observing nature, and painting. So really capturing, capturing the real natural world without any screens interrupting, and no, no photographs, no um, pictures on the internet. It's, it's from, from the, the real deal, the natural areas itself. That's, that's really what distinguishes it. Because some people paint natural areas, but they paint it from photographs that they take, and they're not out there living and breathing that natural setting. It's right. It's just a different experience being outdoors, that you're, you're connecting with the light, the atmosphere, the weather conditions, the air. So all of that is incorporating incorporated into the painting. You feel it in the painting. So, so there's, the, there's an energy there. So the quality of the, the image that comes out of the work really has a different feel to it, is what you're saying. You're, you're living in that moment. Yes. How did you first get started doing that? Well, I love being outdoors for one. I love going hiking and just being out in nature is inspiring. And I'm always observing the colors in nature. And that's another thing you just don't see in a true photograph, the, the true essence of the colors in nature. And I've just always been drawn to it. And it's not easy. I remember when I first got into plein air painting, I was overwhelmed by what was in front of me. Like, how am I gonna put this on a canvas? How am I going to handle all that I see? It was very difficult, but it, it gets easier. And it, I love the challenge. I love now, the challenge elements in a quick pace. Why, why the quick pace? Because the light changes so fast. Oh, yeah. Hours you can spend painting outdoors. So there's the morning time. And I find like 11 o'clock or noon, again, depending on the season, because the light does change different at different times of the year. By noon, if you're not done, you need to stop and go back the next day and work on the plein air painting the same time of day. Yeah, because it's so different. Wow, that's interesting. You know, I've noticed that um, I, I'm a, a nonstop photographer. I'm always got my phone out and I'm always taking pictures. I include them in my newsletters that we put out for promoting the radio show, but um, I just do it because I'm inclined to. But what I've noticed is, let's say I'm looking at a really beautiful, very interesting sunset, right? And I take a picture and I look at the picture and say, what? That's not what I was looking at. I was seeing brilliant fuchsias and corals and and on my photograph, I'm going to be seeing kind of pale pink and, and faded yellow. And I'm always shy. I said, what? I bought this expensive Samsung. They're going to kill me. But this, you know, I always, people are always looking at the back of it and saying, whoa, what's that? I have absolutely no clue because I don't see the pictures that this is taking as being a big advance on the other one. But why? It doesn't capture the real colors. 
So I, I feel like, you know, what you're doing is so much more true to, as you say, the experience of, of the real natural setting than the photographs can be. That is so true, yes. I mean, they color up photographs. There are people, you know, they add, you can up sort of up the level of saturation and do all kinds of tricks, but those are tricks and they're still tricks. not. And I think, you know, spending time outdoors as a painter, I heard an artist on a podcast says you have to spend probably 10, the 10,000 hour rule, right? Spend 10,000 hours outdoor painting, then you have the knowledge to go in a studio and do the work. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, because you will have really absorbed how it really works and then that becomes a, a part of you and then you can reflect it from memory. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. Well, tell me about some of the other artists who are coming along with you and tell me about some of the areas that you're anticipating. Besides Sunday, of course, you'll be literally painting right there in the sculpture garden or in the woods or around the house, but right on the grounds of what we call Crevasse 22 River House, kind of an awkward name for an art center, but it comes from the fact that it is sited where there once was a big crevasse or a, a break in the levee. And, um, and then the River House is what we named the art center. It's a, an old mansion that was there before, not so old, it's really kind of mid-century, but um, we've you know, fixed it up. Sidney Torres uh, worked with his architect uh, who did a beautiful job turning it into a really a bona fide art space. So it's, it's really beautiful out there. Um, but so you'll start there, you're going to be painting out there on Sunday. And then tell me about some of the other people working with you and some of the places you're going to go. So we're scheduling paint out days. I'm not, I haven't scheduled those yet, but they're coming. And we're going to paint in Hopedale, Delacroix. We're going to paint in Wyklosky, the fishing communities, and the shrimp boats, and the oyster boats, or the marsh scenes down the road with the with our cypress trees that are no longer cypress trees. It's like the skeletons of cypress trees, which are just as beautiful. But it also shows the devastation that has happened over the years in our community which is another important reason that we need to get out there and document in painting through the artist's eyes, our community, because every season of a hurricane, a little bit gets washed away. And other kinds of development take their toll as well. Yeah. 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 And it so, happens fast. Yeah, too fast. So Wyklovsky, um, Delacroix Island, um, how about on the uh, river? Are you going to go along the river at all? Along the river, we're going to go along Bayou Road. We're going to go to the Islenos Complex and Museum, Dockville Farm. We're going to go oh. to Araby as well. Mm -hmm. How about, are you going to be able to get out at all into the mangrove area or um, any of the islands uh, by boat? Is anybody going to venture out on the water? Well, I have been asking about this. We need a boat. <laughs> well, we we should, let's, let's work on that. We have to think about that. Of course, we have a pontoon sitting right there on our, um, the sculpture garden. Um, 
I, they haven't, I don't think they've gotten quite as far as really getting it out on the water yet, but I know they're aiming to, so maybe in the future, but um, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out who to talk to about getting out on the water. Uh, I've called a couple people. We'll, we'll talk about that some more, but I hope you do because uh, from what I understand, and I haven't seen them in this area, I've seen them in Panama, it was mainly where I saw the mangroves, but I really would love to see them here. And I know they're very exotic looking and, and there they are again, 25 minutes from the city. So um, how can you resist? And then, um, you know, some of the wetlands, um, um, you know, that's where all that land is that is not counted or thought of. It's all those islands that extend from, from the, you know, the heart of St. Bernard on the, along the main roadways all the way to Mississippi. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Where you, and, and you have all the hatcheries and the, um, and, and the migrating birds. I mean, I was totally blown away when we had Eric Johnson from the Audubon uh, Institute come, uh, not, not the uh, zoo, but the uh, uh, bird uh, organization, come to our woods and point out these beautiful little, you know, colorful songbirds that were all over the woods that I had never noticed before, even though I've, I've walked the trail in that, in that woods many times. So um, yeah, this, do you, you must do that also. You must capture the bird life. Yeah, sometimes they move so quickly. I was doing studies the other day of the cows in the field. I was painting the, the landscape of the cow pasture with the oak tree. And then I decided to paint the cows because they were all congregating near me, but they were moving so fast. So I was just doing gesture work. Yeah, right. I was thinking that that's something too. If somebody wanted to come out Sunday and paint, they can, right? They can join your, your folks. Yes, bring your supplies and come out and paint or tell them, come out and tell them what they need an easel, they need their paints, what else? Well, paints, or if you don't paint, you're, you're welcome to draw and use charcoal or pestles. If right. you paint, paint and canvas or canvas board. Or even on, um, I mean, people can paint on um, what, not cardboard per se, but what is that? a hard paper stock that they can paint on. Watercolor paper. Yeah. Watercolor. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so people, um, I, I, I think it's important that people know that if they, if they are so moved and you don't have to be any kind of really skilled artist because I was thinking about doing it myself and I, I'm not gonna go out there and be perfect about what I'm doing. I'm gonna do more. When you said gesture, that's what reminded me of that's how I, um, paint and draw and color in when I go out and do it plain air on I have a little place next to the Wolf River in Mississippi and and um, I'll go out in the woods there different times of the year and and just you use pastels or gouache or or um, crayons even and just draw so fun and observing and being gestures on my part yeah, yeah I have, and then uh, when you're working with other artists, that that's fun too. I mean, artists have a tendency to work alone in their own studios, but when you're out there as a group, then you have that that all that interaction between you. And by the way, learning from other artists, everybody has something to share with you. Everybody has something to share. We we do that. We meet together once a week, and we walk around, look at each other's work, and we give suggestions and comment because. Going to another artist's painting with fresh eyes, we may see something a little bit differently than they would. So it's, it's helpful to be in a group. 
I'm I'm uh, thrilled that your your uh, your home base is going to be um, Crevasse 22, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the work that folks are going to do. Now, I think it's important to mention that when the show opens in the fall, work will be for sale, right? Not my, not maybe everything, but there will be work for sale, right? There will be work for sale, yes. And so, the, and the campuses are. Uh, are they a particular size or whatever anybody wants to work? It's whatever they want to work in. Mm -hmm. So it can be everything from smaller to larger. There tends to be a smaller canvas because it's easier to, to carry around and mm -hmm. to put an easel outdoors. When it's windy, you don't want a big, huge canvas to blow over. <laughs> blow over and then it, it could be a mess. That'll be yeah. very natural <laughs> by nature. Um, what what is what is your most favorite outdoor in nature place that you have worked in that particularly moved your artistic heart? Oh wow, they all do. It's yeah. all a different experience, and I, I feel like I fall in love with every place I paint. I learn and connect with it, and. You, you kind of develop a relationship with what you're painting. And when I when I see that scene that I have painted, it's like it's like meeting an old friend again. Oh, I like love it's that. your art. Yeah. And um, and again, I mean, I, I just think it's gonna be so shocking for people to see the natural areas that uh, we have right there at Crevasse 22, but also throughout Jefferson, throughout um, St. Bernard Parish. So here's my question. Um, can people also join you as you go around the parish? Yes, absolutely. Tell me how that would work. What, how, how, how would they do that? So we need to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, um, maybe social media, I'll, I'll put out some social media invites to let people know where we're going to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe last minute. Artists tend to be last minute, last scheduling. The weather's going to be nice. Let's go out and paint. Wow. So it could be that spontaneous. Yes. Well, that's great in a way because that, you know, I think a lot of people more and more today are um, getting into the pattern of, of working uh, spontaneously just because, I don't know, we're getting a lot of uh, challenges thrown our way and, and to overcome them, I think we're building a little more flexibility into our lives and our schedules. So um, I think that uh, it's going to be possible for people to join in. I love the idea of people joining in. I love the idea of your group working together. I love the idea of you all being out there this Sunday from 11 until 4, making paintings, maybe selling a couple, and, um, and inviting other people to join in. So um, y'all, you need to come out to Crevasse 22. Uh, River House, look it up online and get your map out. It's very easy. Actually, let me give you the directions, okay? It goes like this. You go down um, uh, St. Claude Avenue. St. Claude Avenue becomes um, St. Bernard Highway. You take St. Bernard Highway past the St. Bernard Port, past the school, and you just keep going until you reach a light. On the left-hand side, is it's called the Green Store or Gillery's. And on the right, you're going to see a purple and pink striped snowball stand. That's where you turn right. 
and you turn right almost into like a U-turn onto Cerro Lane. You take Cerro Lane straight out to the levee and right just before the levee of the Mississippi River, that's where this is, um, there's a gate and it's a gate and there's a little sign that says Crevasse 22 River House and you turn in that gate and you go a little ways and then it looks like the road's not gonna go much further and you'd make a left and that's where the parking, parking area is. So it's that easy. I mean, literally you just go straight down St. Claude, straight down St. Bernard Highway. You get to view all kinds of things from the, some of the, you know, one of the big petrochemical plants, but the Dockville farm, the alley of oak trees that are on the way down. I don't know, I'm sort of hooked on it. The pasture where the cows are. And then, by the way, it's a great little place that has, uh, it's called uh, Barker's Dozen, and they have donut holes that I, I don't know. I'm just nuts about those darn donut holes, and I pick them up every time. There's some great places to eat along the way, but we're going to have a lot of food. So um, know that you don't have to stay home and prepare breakfast before you get out. If you get down there, we'll have some things for you to eat and drink. So there's that, too. Have I missed anything? You want to add anything? Hmm. I just really, I really appreciate you supporting this. This has just been a dream and a passion for so long and it's, it's happening. Like it's, it's so exciting. I, I'm so grateful for you doing it. I really am. It makes our first summer Sunday a very special one. And we'll be doing those throughout the summer, uh, one Sunday a month. Um, but I can't wait till the fall when we have the, the uh, results of all of your painting all over St. Bernard in all those natural areas that take up three quarters of the parish. I still can't get over that. Thank you so much, Sabrina Schmidt and um, everybody else. Um, stand by now and we're going to hear about some of those natural areas from a naturalist point of view. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. Blaise. Pezalt is as passionate as they come about the natural environment. And he has a career dealing with it to prove it. Um, so we all care more and more than ever as we are learning um, how threatened our natural environment is. Um, but he, he's been at it. So um, I'm very intrigued to check in with him and we're going to particularly focus uh, today on that peninsula, you might call it, or island because of the intercoastal canal called St. Bernard Parish. And I'm sure many of you, when you think of St. Bernard, you basically think of um, Judge Perez Drive and, and um, the um, uh, St. Bernard Highway. There's so much more to St. Bernard than that. So we're going to be talking about marshes and swamps and forests and riverfronts and um, gulf um, uh, uh, waterfronts and, and so on. And, um, and that is about as far as my knowledge goes. So I am going to be turning it over to Blaise Pezold, who works as a program manager for Coastal Matters for the Miro Foundation, which has really been helping to um, develop and protect the natural areas of St. Bernard. So Blaise, give me first a kind of general overview of what our um, natural um, areas in St. Bernard are all about. Well, 
I mean, when we're talking about natural areas and seeping art, I think it's good to note that uh, about 15 to 20% of seeping art is developed um, or behind only, a levee. Only 15 yeah. to 20%? Wow. The rest is, is all wild. Um, so oh, it's, when you look at it geographically, we're a tiny little sliver in the corner um along the river and then there's this wide expanse that goes all the way to the mississippi um border um wow. it's it's enormous uh it's much bigger geographically than you know orleans parish and we think of orleans as a much bigger place but you know when you're talking about acreage we are um considerably larger what is the acreage? Do you know offhand? I don't know that number. <laughs> <laughs> I love to ask questions that we don't know. Really That's a good question. You got me. <laughs> right out the gate, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a shocking number just to hear that um, only uh, 15 to 20% of the parish is developed. That's just absolutely blows my mind. That is not, I wasn't prepared to hear that at all. So, um, all right, well, tell me about the natural areas. I think if you're going to start with natural areas and um, especially ones, you know, the, there's, there's always the river, there's the batcher. Um, we have a lot of undeveloped batcher in St. Bernard. Um, it's really, um, you know, our, along our river here, it's, it's quite loud and boisterous, uh, the, the shipping industry along it, but there are, you know these this long sliver that runs the entire length of the parish and if you compare it to like um orleans or jefferson ours is um for the most part undeveloped um so you, there's a lot of um you know sycamore trees and cottonwoods and black willows that, that uh, line our batcher areas and those are kind of corridors for wildlife um i my favorite thing to do on them uh, other than look at the river and kind of enjoy the cool breeze that comes off of there occasionally is um, when it's cooler and uh, when it's fairly humid we will have uh, oyster mushrooms grow on those uh, willow trees so I, I like that um, as really? far as the batcher um, if we're talking outside of the levee, I think you have to start uh, at the Chandelure Islands. Um, there's a lot of history there, and that's, uh, you know, an, an enormous giant rookery. Um, they're barrier islands, so there's a beach there. Um, when I think about those, the, that's the only place that seagrass beds exist uh, in Louisiana. Bed grasses. You're throwing a lot of uh, things out at me. We got to go a little further into <laughs> seagrass beds before we do uh seagrass spreads though beds <clears throat> let me go back for a minute to the chandelier islands and the rookery you mentioned a giant rookery a giant rookery of what um mainly uh shorebirds you know but you have anything from um you know terns to pelicans nesting out there and um oyster skimmers, the, just a lot of different types of shorebirds. Okay. Um, but you, you also, that's also an area that um, uh, it's the northernmost uh, 
pupping ground for lemon sharks. So pupping ground would be basically a rookery for sharks, um, but they they like to uh, have their young there and raise them, and that's the northernmost point in the world. And you call that pupping grounds? Yep, think like puppies. Yeah. Yep, just like puppies. Right, pupping grounds. That's a new one for me too. Learning all kinds of things today. Wow, and that is the northernmost. Where are most of them? Um, you know, like temperate uh, equatorial regions for lemon sharks. I'm not really a, a shark expert. It's just something I remember okay. hearing over the years. Okay, so we got a rookery. How about seagrass beds? What is that about? Seagrass beds, those um, underwater grass. If you've ever been to Florida, they have extensive ones in Florida. Um, those are uh, those are areas much like a mangrove, which is black mangrove out there as well. Um, much like mangroves, it's it's kind of uh, a refuge area for smaller organisms. And so, um, just like young sharks would be, young sharks are there to eat um, small or organisms around those seagrass beds and the mangroves, but you also um, have many other creatures that that'll have their young there, and then they they use those kind of labyrinths of structure to hide in. So just a, a couple other kinds of critters that you might find there. What's that? What are some of the other kinds of critters you might find there? Uh, I, you know, it, it's, there's, there's all kinds of things that would be out there. You have diamondback terrapins. Um, on, on the actual island, it's mainly birds. Um, you have sea turtles around that, like Kemp Ridley's sea turtles. Um, and then it's, it's definitely a great place to go fishing. So you would have your, your speckled trout and redfish and things like that. Okay. All right. So, uh, you've mentioned mangroves a couple of times. Let's talk about mangroves. If you're talking about mangroves, I think the place to go see those would be Gardner Island. So Gardner Island, if you follow the MRGO channel out, um, you the if you follow the rocks out from the MRGO channel, um, on the north side of them is Gardner Island, and that is just wall to wall uh, mangroves, and some of them get to about eight to ten foot high there, and you have these like little kind of bayous that wind up through them, very small bayous. Um, they are super thick with mangroves. Um, basically almost a monoculture of mangroves there and it's kind of fascinating to look at because it's very different it's a very different ecosystem it has a lot of like large structure to it versus what you would normally see in a marsh so it definitely stands out from everything and then they um mangroves have a different structure especially with the root systems um i'm trying to uh, pneumatophores or what they call their roots, um, which are think kind of like cypress knees. They stick up like those. And so it, it just, uh, the patterns there are, are different from what you would see in the rest of the marsh based on, on the way that those trees grow. 
what what is the what is the history of mangroves and I know that they're important, and I think that I, if I understand correctly, one of the reasons they're important, uh, again, because of those root systems, uh, providing structure for maintaining uh, the earth around them. So um, they, they kind of, you know, uh, uh, facilitate, um, uh, what would be the right word, uh, preservation of land. Yeah, the, um, often, you know, it's sediment will get um, accumulated up underneath those those root systems, and uh, so they can they can be really good at that. And and like I was saying earlier, ha habitat wise, they're great for uh, a host of creatures. Um, when I'm often in there, I'll see um, uh, different types of snails, um, um, aka escargot. <laughs> um <It's a> booty <laughs> yeah well you'll you'll see anything from those to like conks um to rib muscles conks yep okay but very small ones um i've seen blue crabs in there you know you name it, it small organisms but it, it's definitely part of the food web okay okay um now would you call the area that they're in basically Wetlands is that? Would you characterize the overall area as wetlands, or how would you characterize it? I mean, to be real, really technical, uh, um, a cluster of mangroves is called a mangle, and um, I would I would first call it that. But it's definitely part of wetland ecosystems because it does, you know, there's a tidal exchange that goes through it. Another good thing to point out is when when they bloom, it is it is a huge pollinator for that that area. So you, you'll see it just covered in bees when they're blooming. So we we're we're our bee population we know is challenged in our country. So the another importance of your mangrove uh, um, uh, is. Um, supporting the life of our bees mm -hmm. yep how would you describe that if it's at all possible quantitatively so you know is there some way to to say um these the mangroves are critical for um making sure that we have um x percentage of the bee population of this region or is there a way to describe that or not I don't know if I could uh, quant like quantifiably describe it. I would say, um, you know, referring to it as like a ecological stepping stone within the year, you know, so for looking at a full year cycle of ecosystems in the marsh, you know, that that bloom is probably what gets those bees through August and September or something like that. Um, I, I don't remember offhand when exactly they bloom, but you know, that's, that, that's kind of a, a, you know, different things bloom at different times of year and ecologically that's to keep, well, you know, one to reproduce and then two that keeps your pollinators going throughout that year so that they, they're focused on something or focused on a food source. Right. Okay, um, 
how about our shorelines? How would you talk about both the shoreline on the river and the shoreline on the Gulf? Uh, the shoreline on the Gulf, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is oyster reefs. And at one point, um, we had a structure in Louisiana that rivaled the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, as far as the um, size of, of that um, ecosystem that was, uh, you know, a bunch of organisms. Um, but that's kind of all been mined. And um, it's more, we are set up in more of like a oyster cropping system. Um, kind of like the, you know, the prairies of the US were turned under to become cornfields and you have very little prairie, like wild prairie left. We, we still have a large amount of wild reef left, but it's, it's not what it was uh, at, at one point. Not, not at, uh, you know, when colonialism started. So um, that's, that sounds sad. Yeah, mildly um, depressing. Anytime <laughs> lose, yeah, anytime you lose important natural features, it's um, it just it, it adds to your angst about you know where our planet is going, and and so I, I don't like to hear that. But on the yeah. other hand, you're, you were talking about oyster. Would you call it uh, crop? You said cropping or or harvesting. Yeah, the um, the, the oyster industry uh, basically instead of having a giant um wild reefs and there are there are still wild reefs that are run by the state um government but um when you're talking about private leases um those are done on the the floor of the bay and it's more like they're they're spreading out material for oysters to adhere to and to grow on and then at some point they come back through and and harvest that and then lay it out again and then harvest it again so there's no real building in that bay of those that you know of an actual reef structure um you do have that within um the wild reefs but even those get harvested um from time to time so um is there any what is the downside of losing reefs? Um, it definitely, it, from the scientific articles I've read, it definitely affects um, the tidal scour upon the marsh. And so that's the day-to-day the -day of water coming into a bay or a marsh or an ecosystem and then coming back out and, and uh, the erosion that's caused by that. Um, you'd have a much slower system that would like come in, um, come in slower and leave slower. Um, and then it also leaves us more open at times to fetch, uh, which is windblown erosion coming across a body of water. So like a lake or a bay, um, it, it definitely leads to erosion on that. Um, the other part to it is, is water quality because oysters are um they're filter feeders so they they can clean massive amounts of of water in a day um so if you don't have all those filters then you have uh somewhat deteriorated water mm -hmm. 
Wow, okay. You know, um, I uh, like to think of oysters. Um, my husband is an artist and he actually makes a lot of art and jewelry with oyster shells, literally. And I think he was one of the first people that I know about way back in the 70s who started doing that before it became more popular. Um, so we have a special place on our hearts, you might say, for oysters. And uh, I, I don't like to hear anything negative about <laughs> oysters either. And so I don't know why I'm on the phone with, with you who can share with me the bad news, but hopefully, hopefully we have some good news. Let's talk about good news. Is there anything you can tell me that's going on in terms of preservation of the natural spaces in St. Bernard that sure. um, ease the depression? So um, we... Speaking of oysters, we have the largest largest artificial oyster reef in the world in St. Bernard. Wow. Um, and they just, so they've completed a, an enormous section of it and they just started the second um, half of that project. And it's called um, the Biloxi, um, Biloxi Marsh Living Shoreline. Biloxi Marsh Living Shoreline, okay. And it's a really cool project. Um, they have multiple, what I would call widgets of um, structures built to mimic an artificial oyster reef. And they tested them all against each other in the same area, um, which is different from how they had originally been doing it for years where they would do them in one spot and be like, oh, it works. Look, look at this, this idea, this works here. And then they would do it somewhere else and it wouldn't work. And then they would try somebody else's in a different spot and they never were testing them against each other. And so this kind of tests them all in one spot and you, you know, all the salinities are the same and um, the wave action is fairly similar. And, you know, all, all of the factors that can go into its um, success or demise are all in the same spot. So it's, it's scientifically, that's a, a, a great idea. Okay, that sounds, um, I like that. Go ahead. Um, we also have the largest um, marsh creation for habitat uh, restoration project in the world going on. Wait, and it, that it just started we off. We have the largest, I'm sorry, say that again. Marsh creation for marsh. habitat. Okay. So there's other projects that are larger as far as dredging um, that have gone on in Dubai and I think the Hong Kong airport was larger, but those were those were for man-made structures to go on. This is strictly for for wetland habitat, so it's it's different from those. So it is the largest, and so the you know those are two projects that Saint Bernard actually leads the world in. Okay, uh, uh, marsh creation. So. But you would call it natural marsh creation. Is that it? Yeah, or, habitat, that, habitat marsh creation. Of, of, um, reflecting or imitating a natural marsh as opposed to creating an artificial, like the artificial reefs. Basically, what they do is they, they go and dredge off the bottom of a lake or a bay. Um, they pump it on to what is an uh existing broken up marsh that's kind of fallen apart and it gives it new life um so they might pump um they'll kind of create a small levee around the site they'll pump into it 
um and then in some places they'll kind of bust the levee and it'll go over a marsh and that's called nourishment um so they might nourish the marsh or they might actually recreate original marsh that was there at one point um and then at the end of it they go and take those little levees and they bust holes in them um so that it has natural connectivity to the tidal regime i, I just I, I have to be honest i had absolutely no idea that there was this much intentional work going on to preserve and develop and advance our natural assets in St. Bernard Parish or anywhere else in Louisiana for that matter. So I, I'm, I'm really fascinated with what you've been saying. Let me go to the woods. I'm gonna be closing in on our time available pretty soon, but let's go to, to the woods. Tell me about the wooded areas. I mean, when I drive down St. Bernard Highway and I pass the port, and the school and a couple churches and uh, uh, some neighborhood, I go through a patch of woods and I have no idea how deep that patch goes. So all I know is what I see from the road because I haven't been out in it. So tell me about our wooded areas. Our woodlands are extensive. And so you have what's called live oak uh, hackberry forest are the, the majority of what we have here. Um, so the, the hackberry are um, a tree that creates a, a berry, obviously. Um, and there's a couple other um, understory species that are very bird friendly. And then you have, you know, your live oak is kind of the climax of that um, ecosystem. And um, these forests are super important to uh, transgulf migratory birds. Um, so those are birds that uh, frequent, they'll, they'll go anywhere from South America to Central America during the winter. And then they go to the tip of the Yucatan and then they fly across the Gulf. They land here um, in the, in the spring and they, uh, it's, I think they call it a fallout or, or something to that extent. Basically, they fall out the sky. And there are a lot of really pretty little birds, you know, tanagers, orioles, robins, um, uh, buntings, those kind of type birds. And they go eat those berries and any kind of insects or uh, caterpillars that would be on those trees in that ecosystem. And it's those ecosystems are called uh, or referred to as kind of the convenience store on their trip across the Gulf. And so they, they fall out, they eat a quick meal as quick as they can. And, I, and I've seen them before and they're really easy to spot. And we have a bird festival down here based upon it. All right. We, we've been talking uh, in a way about uh, kind of um, the, 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 uh, the core ecologies. And I don't know if we've missed any, but that covers a lot. Um, and we've talked about, um, to some extent, how we're compensating for what we've lost. But tell me about just the pure beauty of it all. I mean, we, we all know now, I mean, all you have, you know, if, if, if you have touched Google with one pinky, you know how important green space is to our own life quality. It's so important for us. So um, tell me, uh, you know what 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 do you see developing as far as um, the the uh, beauty of the area and and our ability to preserve it? 
do, do you feel quite frankly can i ask you do you are you optimistic about it or are you fearful or you're somewhere in between but what's your sense of of what's coming and and what can we all do this is always the big question i mean we can kind of bemoan and 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 um feel badly or optimistically about what's happening, but what can we do? What can the average citizen do to help? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're making, it, I think it's good to understand that our, our wetland systems without, um, without new river sediment are basically a dying patient. Um, and that's putting it mildly. Um, so we can do all these things like build marsh projects that are the largest in the world and um, oyster reefs and all that. And um, it will still continue to erode. It's, it's just what it is. You have you, sediment is taken out of the system. You have to put sediment in it. Um, I think as far as what we can do on a, on a local or, a, a, you know, each person level, um, there's plenty of organizations that focus on trying to get people out there to plant trees, to um, uh, reestablish oyster reefs. So uh, I would say Common Ground Relief is a great place to sign up. They do a lot of plantings year round. Um, Common CRC, Ground Relief. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, they plant a lot of trees. Um, down here along the Violet Canal, I work closely with them. Um, they Coalition also have so, an oyster. Say that again, Coastal what? Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. So they, they plant um, cypress and um, Tupelo trees with us in Central Wetlands, which used to be a cypress forest, and it's kind of remnants of that. Um, and then they also have an oyster shell recycling program and so you could do this two ways for the oyster shell recycling. You could go to the restaurant that, um, that recycle their shells and go eat there. Um, and just that helps out. Um, or you could go to one of their shell bagging events where they bag up shell. Or you could go to one of their, well, it's three ways. Uh, or you could go to their oyster reef deployments that they do. And so this next year, I think they're going to do two deployments in St. Bernard, they're doing them around uh, indigenous mound sites to protect them. Um, and, the, and the other group I forgot to mention was Pontchartrain Conservancy. Um, they do tree plantings as well. Now, but let me go back to um, what you said about uh, sediment. So maybe another thing that citizens can do, because there's so much controversy over the issue of sediment, there are of course, the fishermen, some of the fishermen themselves are concerned about um, uh, uh, bringing more sediment in, which they are concerned about the effect on um, their fisheries. In the but um, I think that uh, perhaps one of the things that you might suggest is that um, the average citizen become more uh, informed on the need for um, introducing more sediment and, and the strategies for doing that and how it can be done safely so it doesn't harm fisheries. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I was speaking to, you know, my background, I, I got a, a geology degree from UNO. And so just geologically, that's how uh, delta systems work. 
um i understand it affects them economically and um that's something that the the state and the fishermen are going to have to work out on their own terms you know um what what the compensation is and i hope they can figure that out together okay we'll leave it there <laughs> um so just kind of um uh, I've asked you a lot of questions and I've directed the conversation, but let me just for a moment give you an opportunity to say what's on your mind and what you want people to know about the natural areas of St. Bernard. Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is to, um, you know, I, I, like you said, people think of those two roads going in and out or they think of the refineries or they think of the the problematic kind of issues here and um we are probably the easiest to get to um wild area uh in the new orleans area um you know it's it's a 20 minute ride if you're coming from new orleans to get out to a marina and get out on the water you know whether you're in a kayak or you know or a motorboat or whatever you want to do um, and there's a, a, an enormous place to explore. And I think it's um, kind of doesn't make sense that people don't, <laughs> you know, think of it more um, when they think of a, of a place to go to. So um, if, if somebody wanted to go to a marina and get out on the water, um, what would you recommend is the way for them to do that? Now we're going into the tourism business here for a minute. <laughs> You know, who can they call? Um, you know, who's the Ghostbusters they can call to uh, help them uh, get out, get out there? I mean, if they have their own own kayak, there's there's launches. You know, at Hopedale Marina has a, a kayak launch themselves. Uh, you know, that that's set up specifically for kayaks. I know Campos Marina is very friendly to that. Um, I've you know, I think most places are fairly easy to, to launch out of, you know, you could go out of Reggio, you could go out of Delacro. Um, there's so a, there, there's a ton there, of options. Uh, is there, um, is there a list somewhere that uh, people can look up and see, oh, here's the list of marinas in St. Bernard? Oof. Um, uh, my, my advice to you would be to look on Google Maps and try okay. to figure out where you want to go okay. and then all of those are listed on there okay. um an, an easy one too would also be the the 40 arpent wetland observatory 40 um, arpent wetland observatory okay. so that's in the back of chalmette um there's a large lake back there and um it's fairly easy to launch there in this parking lot and all See, just when you say the word Chalmette, it's so interesting because, again, I think most people think of Chalmette as basically like a suburb of, of New Orleans. Yeah. And, uh, they think of the houses that line um, St. Bernard Highway, and they don't think of what's back there. And I'm always curious about what's back there, but I don't have a clue how to get there. So um, even though you're saying go to Google Maps, I, I hope that would be the way to do that, but uh, I can't say that I... Um, feel confident that I could go to Google Maps and figure out where to go. Yeah, I mean, well, the 40 Arpent Wetland Observatory behind that, we're working with Ducks Unlimited and we're about to build a bunch of islands back there. So it, it's actually going to be a really nice spot to go launch a kayak and, and 
go kind of put put around and look at everything. Um, <clears throat> I I live just on the other side of the levee from it, um, so I, I for me that's an easy one. Um, but you know, I, if you go down to Hopedale, Shell Beach, Delacroix, Reggio, all of those places have little marinas and you know you can launch for fairly cheap and and go have a good time out there and you have opened my eyes enormously and if you don't mind i would really appreciate you have all my contact information if there's something going on that you think people should know about positively negatively whatever just things that um, we should check in on please um, pick up the phone or you know click on your text and let me know what's going on okay okay Thank you, Jean. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time you gave because we took a little more time than expected. I might have to edit it a little bit, but um, that's okay. I, I very much appreciate um, learning what I've learned from you. Just amazing stuff, really. 15 to 20 percent of St. Bernard only is not natural. That's just a knockout from yep. beginning to the end of our, our conversation. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. You have Thank a good day. All right. Look forward Bye. to talking again. Bye. For sure.